Welcome to another episode of the Unveiling Grace podcast. As always, I'm with ex-Mormon Christians United for Jesus. My name is Lynn Wilder, and I'm here with my husband, Mike. Hey, it's good to be back again. Hey, I got a great question. Corey's just doing a fabulous, a fabulous job on just explaining the concept of how the universities came about and how they were started and where they've gone from there. But the question I have, you'll see that on a previous podcast, is that if we look into the science and look at physicists or mathematicians or people in the hard science of biology, uh, chemistry, and so forth, how does that relate to Christianity or you know, people that are believers in relationship to people who are not believers, like in the philosophy department? Is there any difference? <laughs> yeah, I think that um, you can look at the demographics in the various departments. And oftentimes, the closer you get to some topic on human nature, that's where you have more resistance to the Christian faith. And so you think about psychology, mm -hmm. uh, biology, and um, yet biology is a discipline that is parasitical parasitically dependent on something more basic, chemistry, and chemistry more parasitically basic on something else, physics, and physics on mathematics and so forth, right? Um, well, it's interesting. You can talk about evolution and say, you know, evolution in the Bible, and, and some people try to make those work out. Others have different things to say, but it is interesting that you've got three different kinds of evolution going on, too. There's the question about biological evolution, again, which is downstream, chemical evolution, the origin of life itself, right? Mm -hmm. And then physical evolution, the origin of a life-permitting universe. How does, uh, do those things stack up? Well, this one's dependent on this, dependent on this. The closer you get to the most basic and fundamental sciences, you tend to get demographically uh, a larger body of people that are more friendly to or explicitly uh, Christians. Um and so, um, you know, when you think about even, even physics dependent on math, well, Descartes was the father of modern geometry, and he was a Christian. And um, it was Leibniz, who I think was the co-inventor between him and Newton, both Christians. Um, at least Newton was a theist, if not a deist. But um, Leibniz uh, once said that, who was the inventor of calculus, said that the atheist can be a geometer, but without God, there would be no geometry. <laughs> In other words, you can't explain. The, the person, anyone can be an atheist, but having evidence and giving the best explanation of the evidence is something else. When you come from a universe that begins through chaotic explosion or something like that, as opposed to uh, divine causal relationship, even if we can countenance the Big Bang through a Christian understanding, namely, God spoke it into existence. And if you want to look at distant starlight and use that as a current scientific discovery, that while you cannot prove anything in science, you can confirm things and come up with probabilistic beliefs. Well, you see that, you know, in the redshift, all the stars and galaxies seem to be moving out from one another. Um, and like a balloon, if you put buttons on a balloon, you blow it up and they all 
move apart from one another in an isomorphic rate. Well, if you deflated the balloon and you inhaled and shrunk that thing, they would all collapse back into a dense point, right? So to speak. Well, that's what the Big Bang was. Now, there's a naturalistic view of the Big Bang by atheists, but even the term Big Bang was first coined by a priest physicist. Interesting. <laughs> so and I think so, your point here is, right, there are still Christians in the hard sciences because these things are logical and reasonable and right. evidential and Christian faith is not in any way counter those things. It is, right. it supports those things. Yes, um, because, you know, and, and so we just had uh, James Tor from Rice University up here at Purdue to do a, a large lecture in front of a thousand people. And James Tor has over 800 publications, 800 publications. Wow. It was a research one level school, and there's not a single professor at Purdue that comes <laughs> in close to that. James Tor got on his knees and prayed for the whole audience, and at least 30 people that night gave their lives to Christ after hearing his take on chemistry and the origin of life. So, yeah, wow. people might hear by the media or by, um, you know, even a majority of professors right now, but there's a reason why there's a majority. It's not because. Christianity is stupid, it's because there's a political game in the hiring processes as well, um, and it's really hard to get in. But yeah, it, it, it is smart to believe, and smart people do believe, and it makes the most sense out of human experience about the origin of the world, uh, the origin and or existence of moral facts in the world, um, the fine-tuning of the initial conditions in the universe, um, all of those things make more sense on theism. And the reason why modern science was spawned in all of its subdisciplines from Christianity is because Christians believed that, as Kepler said, that they can, the best we can do is think God's thoughts after him. We believe that there is a mind that created matter, and now there is a universe that has mind and matter, and we're looking at mind-matter composites in these human beings in sold bodies. Um, but we believe that God created man in his image with the uh, rational capacities, with, with mind, uh, with logic, to be able to go out through sense perception-like bodies to map onto the external world and then bring in uh, knowledge and make inferences and deductions and things like that. This stuff doesn't make sense on matter. Uh, John Locke once wrote the treatise, Can Matter Be Made to Think? Or Thinking Matter. You know, no matter how long you give it, this, this pen is not going to somehow come up with a mathematical equation. Minds do that. And mm -hmm. so the Christian worldview makes the most sense even of the existence of the laws of logic and mathematics, much less science. Yeah. Well, wow, that, that is great. You know, it's it's uh, you know, it's interesting. I've always heard this the saying that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And when you start yeah. looking at science and just looking at how the Bible came to be and all the writings and the 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 manuscripts that we have to support it, it's just like it's amazing. I always like to tell people you go back and read about Alexander the Great. 
I mean, you could go to any university, go to Purdue, and they would they would have all these writings about Alexander the Great, what he accomplished and everything. And I think he existed about 300 AD, uh, uh, I mean, BC. Um, uh, and if I recall, they have about three manuscripts. The earliest is around 700 AD about his life. We're, we're talking almost a thousand years after he lived that we have writings on Alexander the Great. This is what I read. Uh, but then we talk about Jesus and we've got writings, you know, 200, you know, uh, you know, AD, uh, 300 AD, thousands, you know, 25,000 manuscripts that support it. And people question Christ, but they don't question yeah. anything about Alexander the Great without hardly any empirical evidence to support his his life, his history, and so forth. So. Yeah, I would like to go there because so many people that leave Mormonism and go to atheism um, don't have any idea for the evidences of the Bible. And this is one thing that you addressed in that chapter, Leaving Mormonism, why four scholars changed their mind, the very last chapter. Talk to us about some mm -hmm. of those evidences. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, for listeners too, there are massive tomes on this stuff, like the recent book, In Defense of the Bible. Huge uh, evidence for that. Or if you wanted something more booklet size, uh, we have these available at Ratio Christi on the um, evidences for the Bible. But yeah, in the book that you and I uh, co-authored, Lynn, Leaving Mormonism in the last chapter, uh, we get into some of the things that Mike had just addressed in terms of, you know, the two fundamental things in terms of the historicity of um, something in antiquity is one, was it, was it written down early in proximity to the events? And mm -hmm. two, were those writings then transmitted faithfully and, um, you know, kept faithful throughout the ages? And on both of those scores, uh, you're right, Mike. Uh, I, I took two graduate courses, one an entire semester on Plato at Purdue, one on Aristotle. And, um, you know, I'm looking at Aristotle's tomes right now, about a thousand pages uh, in his works. And yet hardly anything in antiquity to support going all the way back. And yet we teach this stuff as fact in the universities. But then they apply double standards to the Bible. All of these other works, um, you know, Rome's famous historian Tacitus or uh, the Latinist Pliny or others, um, either they're written down, you know, centuries after the fact. Buddha's writings, the same thing. Three to five hundred years after the fact was the first time things were put, in, put into writing. Well, how do you know anything happened then? Um, you know, either they were written down well, well after the fact, since you don't know how accurate they were recording the historical facts, or they were terrible at maintaining the faithfulness throughout the ages because manuscripts do deteriorate. They, they get burned. They get destroyed. Uh, they they fall, fall apart over time. They're not meant to be eternal. But we have such a, a wealth of riches, and it's an embarrassment of riches that we have um, because – the New Testament documents were written very, very, very early on. And some of those documents, the primary biographies of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, 
were the early biographies. And so they were the, the eyewitness testimonies that we want in a court of law, right? Uh, Muhammad comes along and you have the Quran 600 years later and said, nah, don't believe the Bible. Don't believe what the Christians are saying. Well, sorry, 600 years after the fact doesn't get you onto the witness stand. These early biographers were at the campfire with the man, the son of man, Jesus, and immediately began writing things down within their lifetimes. And some of the epistles, like Paul's epistles, uh, some of those are, are so incredibly early and contain pieces within it that even liberal scholars believe that were embedded, that Paul embedded from the outside, that were within 18 months to 24 months after the events happened. This is when people are still living and can still examine the evidence. Mm. And now when we look at, you know, not only 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, um, the next closest to that is Homer's Iliad, uh, which I think is up to about a, a thousand now. Um, 30 years ago, it was like 643. Sorry, it's up to 2,200. Um, but So with archaeology, we're finding more and more. But that's the second closest out of any work of antiquity. The New Testament has 25,000. This gives us an opportunity <laughs> to reconstruct. And as many of those, like you said, Mike, in whole book form, whole New Testaments go back to the early centuries. But we have fragments that go back to uh, likely within the first century. And we also have outside evidence, most of which were writings by hostile, um, you know, Sumerians, Jews, Romans, Greeks that, that weren't Christians. And what those outside evidences do, they're not, they're not the best primary source documents. They're secondary um, but they give us an opportunity to confirm or disconfirm the claims made in the primary source documents, uh, the gospel accounts or the epistles. And what we find is that there are over 45 outside sources with 129 independent facts that confirm the life, death, and resurrection claims about uh, Jesus in the New Testament. And you compare this. Lynn, and, Lynn you and I were on a debate with... Um, James Holt, a UK British scholar who's Mormon. And I remember we were on the air with Justin Brierley's premier radio, Unbelievable. And the issue came up about archaeology, for example, in uh, support for the Book of Mormon. And I remember I had just come back not too long ago from Israel. I don't know if you have you guys been there yet? Three yes. times, yes. Three times. Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're going to uh, Greece and Rome next April. So maybe you can come with us on that one. Oh, um, I love but, it. But the, um, you know, uh, a friend of mine who leads all the Utah chapters right now, he and I were there doing an excavation. And right above us was the BYU campus. And I remember telling the story when you and I were on the radio together with James Holt, saying that, um, you know, we had just been there for 10 days. Every member of the team found something. I personally found something from 600 AD all within mm. an hour. And I just couldn't help but think when the BYU campus was right there in, in sight, went up and took a selfie, of course. Um, but I couldn't help but think, I wonder how these students who've been here for an entire semester are faring with this. After all, they've been here for far longer than me. And surely they're seeing all this evidence in support of the Bible reason. Mm -hmm. And yet there's nothing like that for the Book of Mormon. Do you remember James Holt 
uh, Dr. Holt responded and he said, yes, Corey's right about that, but one day we will find it. And I made the same claim about uh, two years later, we were in a three-way debate at the University of Utah with me, a Muslim scholar, and the department head of history at the University of Utah, who is a Mormon, made the same claim, and again, crickets. The Bible has evidence that demands a verdict, and a lot of evidence. It is historically reliable. Now the claim is, what does it say about itself? What claims does it make? And that's huge. Well, when I read it as, as a trained scholar, right, I was blown away by the internal consistency hmm. over and over. We've got the same message, 40 different authors over nearly 1600 years of time. Like who can do that? Right. Um, so you have overwhelming scientific evidence, but there's all kinds of evidences. There's prophecy evidence. There's things that were prophesied that came true, right? You don't have that. In Mormonism, you've got things that were prophesied that didn't come true. <laughs> right. Something you need to, to look into if you're a Latter-day Saint or former Latter-day Saint. Jesus himself quoted the scriptures. So obviously he, when he was alive, believed that they were reliable, right? That's probably the best reason. You've got botanical evidence. You've got like plant, animal. It just goes on and on. But for me, the most powerful evidence that the Bible was true was the power of my own changed life by reading it, coming to know it, and it changing me from the inside out. Corey, you're, you're, you're like this. We, uh, when we were in Israel, okay, and you know that in Mormonism, they teach that the Garden of Eden was in Missouri, if I recall. Uh, and so we're in Israel and we're talking to um, a Jewish guide and we were talking about the Garden of Eden and about fig leaves. And he said, well, fig leaves only grow here in in Israel, you know, in this part of the, the world. And I said, well, you know, in, in the uh, Mormonism, it says they had fig leaves in the Garden of Eden, which was in Missouri. He says, well, I'm going to call my sister, who's uh, some kind of specialist in plants. And he called her immediately on the phone. And he asked her, is there any possibility that fig leaf trees, fig trees could ever have grown in the, in the U.S. in Missouri? And she says, absolutely not. It was, would be absolutely <laughs> impossible for those trees to grow there. And we, we just all had to laugh. So here we have empirical evidence where the LDS says something here, which is not possible. And, and that's the beauty of the Bible. It, it's consistent in everything that it teaches and says and wh what it is. And you just have to, you know, you, you don't you you don't have to be afraid to test it, you know. Where Mormon said, "Well, I just know." Well, I know the Bible is true because I've read it, but because of all the support, the empirical evidence behind it, also that Jesus says who He is and what He was able to do. Right. I think it was Francis Bacon who said that um, he talked about the two books of God: God's Word 
and God's work, scripture and nature. And I think he got that from Augustine. You guys down in Florida call it Augustine. (laughs) But, um, you know, the two books of God, scripture and nature, and that there can't be a contradiction between the two at the end of the day because um, they come from a common source. And so Francis Bacon, being the father of modern science, wanted to launch out and have that kind of investigation. And so you're right. Romans 1 talks about the evidences of, you know, throughout nature and how it's hard to really escape those things. You have to try to cleverly cook up arguments really to defend your chosen lifestyle. It it comes down oftentimes to a, I will not believe, I want not to believe. Not that there is not good reason to believe, but you're right, Lynn, I think at the end of the day, you know, his spirit testifies with my spirit, uh, Romans eight sixteen that I am a child of God. And uh, that life change that Jesus brings is like nothing other. I mean, when I left Mormonism in 1988, it wasn't for apologetic reasons, even though now I'm trained in philosophy, taught philosophy, lead an apologetics ministry. It was, um, I was by happen chance at a non-denominational Christian camp. The guy spoke on hell. I tell people scared the hell out of me and heaven into me. But what it did was it it raised the uh, internal issue with me about my own, not just worth, but worthiness and righteousness. And I knew that I was I was not a good person at that point. And it resonated with what I knew to be true about myself and what the Bible said. Only after that, when I, you know, lived in California my junior year of high school, got discipled by a Christian family, and then moved back home for my senior year of high school, that's when the challenge came about the possibility, possible interpretation of being a son of perdition and ending in outer darkness. Yeah, some people interpreted it that way. But, you know, rereading the Book of Mormon again for the sake of truth and not tradition, I did, found it to be wanting, uh, you know, no archaeology for it, no, no substantiation no one argues themselves into Mormonism. They get into it for different reasons. Um, but, you know, I look at the Bible then and say, well, maybe the Bible's fraudulent too. I, I believed all my life that we believe it's true as far as it's translated correctly. And we all know what that meant, but it was okay because you had a living prophet. So no big deal. But now that I don't have that, what am I going to do? How do I know the Bible is reliable? How do I know God exists? And if so, which God? That's when I went out on the trajectory for the pursuit of truth and uh, for the last, you know, 35 years now, that's what I've been doing. And Jesus said knowledge is central to the Christian experience, not knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. But fortunately, we can know God without having to show God. But there is a ton of evidence to be able to show God or the, the veracity of the Christian faith. Whoa, thank you. We are down to our last three minutes. Um, we're not going to have time to get into the reasons for God, Corey. We're going to have to do that another time. But you have a few minutes here to tie up the evidences for the Bible and maybe to make a contrast to the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon said things like there were coins between 600 um, BC to 400 AD in the Americas, and let, there's no physical evidence of that, right? They said there were horses here, and yet there's no evidence horses came until the Europeans brought them. There are many of those things that actually um, 
evidentially don't work with the Book of Mormon. Um, at the end of the Book of Mormon, 230 people died in a great battle, and they talked about spears and armor and hundreds of I'm, thousands. Yeah, none of no, none of that was found. Yeah, nothing was found. Right, and and yeah. we don't know where that happened. That's not true about anything in the Bible at this point. Right, you know, science cannot prove anything. It can uh, confirm. And so archaeology yep. being a science is a way to confirm things. And it's only been around for about 150 years. But there are 5,000 known sites in the Holy Land, and we're just scratching the surface and already finding one thing after another after another. Uh, where the Bible has been tested and can be, it's confirmed to be reliable and true historically, archaeologically, scientifically, uh, it makes sense philosophically. Those who propone are proponents of the Big Bang. Well, that started with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And the first person to coin the term was a physicist priest. Um, the reason why the universities are there is because the Christians launched them. But that comes all the way back to a world that began with mind, that created matter, sent Christ into the world who was called the Logos or the logic of God. Um, Christianity is reasonable and it is the, the answer to the human condition. Jesus is the answer. And it's not that you don't use the subjective or the emotions in faith. Christian right. faith has that as well. I certainly have had those kind of experiences but, but they don't have to hang out there by themselves like the subjectivity in Mormonism because they can be tested against the word of God and they can be tested against the evidences and every time um, they ring true. At the testimony of nature and my personal testimony can come together in alignment and they, they ought to. That's happiness when they do. Yeah. Subjective Amen. testimony and the objective testimony of history and science and nature. And the Bible actually tells us, right? I've started with the verse right. that if you do not use your brain in faith, if you don't use reasoning in faith, you will end in the assembly of the dead. Well, thank you, friends. It's been a wonderful conversation today. I, I, Sorry, I like the intellectualizing. <laughs> I miss it, actually, now that I'm retired. <laughs> May well, God bless you. I love you, baby. I know. Grace <laughs> my, my background is a little bit different. Okay. <laughs> Grace and peace to you. Until next time. May God bless.